I am so excited that we get to continue this study on James. And uh, if you have been here for the last few weeks and even few months, we have not been in a series for a little bit. We've been kind of taking things week by week and really diving into where we feel like God is leading us as a church and just some different things that we want to talk about. And uh, we're actually back in a series now. How many like logical order people... Can you admit it this morning? Do you really like the fact that we're, okay, I know what's coming. I can study ahead. We're back in a series that for you, this is for you. Um, but it's really for all of us because James is such a wonderful practical letter um, in the New Testament that we are going to study for the next few weeks. Uh, we introed it last week, and um, we learned some things. We learned a lot, actually. We learned something very important about this James, that we learned this, this was not the Apostle James uh, that we read about in the Gospels, but this was actually a different James. And historians and scholars have, have dug this up, and, and all, most of them agree that this is the James we're talking about. Does anybody remember kind of the important little detail about who this James is that writes this letter? Yeah, you got it. Jesus' brother, his little brother. And you might be saying, how does that work? Uh, is he like, is he divine too? What, what, what does that even mean? Well, uh, we, we can study and see that Mary actually did in fact have, have children uh, after Jesus. And so this is James, the brother of Jesus. Well, technically he's his half-brother, same mom, different dads, kind of had a little bit of a blended family thing going on. So you can imagine the dynamics that were, that were happening in their household. But this James must just think about it, must have had an incredible view of the Savior. I mean, a view that nobody else that walked the earth before or since has had. I mean, think about, any of you grow up with a big brother? I am a big brother. So anybody, any of you are a big brother, grew up with a big brother? Did any of you grow up with a big brother that maybe had a little bit of a, a God complex at times? You know what I mean? It felt like they knew what was best and they could boss you around if you were the younger sibling. I mean, my younger sister, if you ask her, She'd tell you I did that at times. I thought, she, she's like, Tim, you're not my parent. You're not my dad. I'm like, well, I know. I, I mean, I can, I can tell you what's up. Imagine if your older brother um, came to you one day and sat you down and be like, hey, uh, hey, uh, Trevor. I don't know if your name's Trevor. I'm just saying. He sits you down and says, uh, I, I just need us to be clear on something. I need you to know. Um, I'm the son of God. Uh, I was sent to this world to save you. And uh, so I'm going to do a bunch of miracles. I'm going to wow and impress a bunch of folks. And then I'm going to die. And then I'm going to come back to life. Yeah, so you can see me again. And then uh, after I do that, I'm going to go up to heaven. I'm going to start running things up there. Does that sound cool? So I just wanted you to know so you can be ready to bow down and serve me. (laughs) Now, would you be like, yeah, I could see that. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Or would you maybe approach that with just a little healthy bit of skepticism, right? I mean, that's what the point of that is to say, James... Is, is a man that got to see Jesus in a different light. But even though he grew up with Jesus, he came to the place of recognizing him as who he was. And that's amazing when you think about it. You know, I believe that the Bible, uh, it doesn't matter what direction you turn in the Bible, and uh, when you study science, nature, scripture, uh, historical records, it doesn't matter what direction you turn, everything points to the validity of Jesus being who he says he was, that he did rise from the dead. I mean, he, he made it known, not just in one small group of people after the cross. I mean, he was, he, he was seen by, I mean, hundreds of people. And there are many records that, that proves that. But I feel like sometimes it's almost humorous to think of how, um, how Jesus was shown to be who he is. And I think through studying James, if his brother could see it, I mean, 
what, what are we waiting for, right? I mean, if, if his own brother can say, this is the Savior, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, I think that proves a lot. So we are going to study and continue to study this letter of James. The other thing we know about James was he was incredibly practical. In fact, he was brutally practical. I mean, he did not mince words. He did not pull punches. He just said it like it is, right? And uh, sometimes it's kind of harsh and hard to take, but I promise that he is saying this for our joy. Maybe not our happiness, but our joy. Because through his teaching and through what he was communicating, we can get a complete picture. And pay attention to that word complete. We're going to come back to that. A complete picture of what our faith walk should look like. Um, so he's very practical. How many of you consider yourself a generally practical person? You can be honest. I, I like to think of myself as practical. I think most guys like to think that, yeah, we're practical. I mean, we don't think of things irrationally. We're very practical and logical. Um, I tend to be practical when it comes to people and relationships. I mean, I'm just being honest. I, uh, I think of things very practical in a very pragmatic way. Um, I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not the most sensitive guy. I've not been accused of that. I'm not overly emotional. Uh, I'm working on it. I know there are lots of pastors that are, that are wonderful with, with dealing with all kinds of situations and they're very sensitive and tender. Uh, I got a ways to go. Uh, this is, this is my happy face right here. It's about as far as I'm going. All right. So don't, don't, doesn't mean I don't like you. I'm just, that, that's, I, I tend to look things very practically. My wife, Misty, is the complete opposite. And thank God for that because we wouldn't have any friends or nobody would come to our house if she was not the caring, wonderful woman of God that she is. She's very, I don't want to say she's impractical when it comes to people, but she, uh, she thinks of things differently than I do. Um, very sensitive, very compassionate. Um, she will throw aside logic and reason if it means she can help somebody. And I love that about her. And uh, I tend to be that way when it comes to things and situations and even like memories. I, I get very sentimental, uh, sentimentally attached to things. And of course, she's the opposite of that. She's very practical when it comes to things. It's not a big deal for her. She has an impulse buy, impulse shop. She doesn't attach emotion to things. Um, an example of this was uh, a couple of days ago, we were driving around and we were in our old neighborhood in Barnhart where I grew up and, uh, I was driving and she, I, I made a turn and she's like, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going to drive by our old house. Uh, and she's like, why would you do that? I, said, I just want to see what, what it looks like. She goes, you want to see what somebody else's house looks like? What? Why? I'm like, no, I want to see what my house looks like that those people took away from me. I mean, I was fired up about this, and she couldn't see. It's very impractical. Why? Then it's not your house anymore. But it had this sentimental value to me. So she's practical when it comes to those type of things. I'm practical when it comes to people. James, I would argue, is incredibly practical when it comes to relationships. And sometimes it's hard to take because the tone is harsh. You ever been around somebody that their, home, their, their tone is just harsh and you can't even hear what they say? Don't miss out on the truth that is packed in here because of the tone. Um, we need to dig a little d- deeper and realize what he's talking about and who he's talking to. So, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of James. Um, if not, you can open up your smartphones, look at them on the screens. Uh, if you do have one of these old-school leather-bound Bibles uh, and you don't know where James is, turn to the end, to Revelation, and hang a left a couple of books, and we'll find James there. Um, last week, we, we started with chapter 1, verse 1, and, and I'm going to read it to you again. Again, proving that James saw Jesus as, as Lord. James 1, chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. And that's it. I am a, he's saying, I'm a servant of God. I'm not, 
I'm not Jesus' brother, his buddy, his homeboy. I, I, am, I am convinced that he is Lord. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say all kinds of very practical things. And we learned last week, uh, we looked at the first four verses, if you remember, if you were with us. If not, watch online. He says, uh, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Remember that? We talked about last week that oftentimes in, um, in our Christian walk, and I would say out of good intention, we somehow try to convince people that once you come to Christ, it's, 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 it's smooth sailing. It's not going to be any, your problems are going to go away. You're not going to have any struggles or issues. And listen, the ultimate problem does go away when we come to Christ, right? The problem of life and death, the problem of I need a savior. That is completed when we come to Christ. But that doesn't mean we're not going to have troubles, that we're not going to struggle, that we're not going to face junk. Um, so we learned that last week. Um, and remember, context is everything. Context is everything, especially when you're reading these letters. Understand that James is writing to a specific audience. He was writing to Jewish Christians that were scattered, and many of them being persecuted. So when he wrote, consider it pure joy, when you face trials. This, just was, this wasn't just theory for these people. This was reality. This is what they were facing. So we understand that, and we kind of get a, an overview of, of what, where James was going. And I kind of want to, we're going to spend most of our time in the second chapter of James near the end. But in between, there's some really good stuff. I want to encourage you to read it on your own. But let me just give you a couple of, of nuggets of wisdom from James that, that we don't have time to go in depth with. So James 1, 19 says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Write this down, in other words. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I mean, that would do our world a ton of good if we just listened to that, right? I mean, there'd be no Facebook wars or arguments back and forth. I mean, politics, don't even get me started, would look completely different if we would actually listen to this. Um, James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Another translation says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. James is saying you've got you to do something with this. You can't just let this be theory or in your head. You need to, it needs to make its way out. It needs to leak its way out. And that's kind of a foreshadowing of where we're going to be going today in the end of the second chapter. So what's, what is James trying to do in this whole this whole book, and especially where we're going to go today, I believe he's trying to get our attention. I believe he's honestly trying to wake some of us up. He's trying to wake us up in the best possible way. And sometimes, how many of you are morning people and you just love waking up? I mean, you just, you hear the birds. Okay, I don't understand you people. I am not that way. I can't stand mornings. I just assume, you know, forget it. To me, life doesn't start until at least 1030. Uh, and that's, that's like early. Um, but, you know, because of my job, I can't really do that. I, I have to force myself into a different routine. Sometimes we need a little bit of help waking up in the morning. I don't know if you're like me. I need, do you need like an alarm clock, an explosion, you know, like all kinds of stuff going off. How many of you, are you the type of person that can like pre-program what time you wake up in the morning? That is amazing. You can be like 5.53 and then just you're, you're awake. No alarm clock, no nothing. I mean, that's, it's kind of freaky. Uh, I think there should be studies done on your brain because I don't know how that works. The closest thing that I can compare to is on every Sunday morning, pretty much, um, I wake up before my alarm, like perpetually, like 40 minutes, then 20 minutes, then 10 minutes. It happened this morning. Two minutes, like before my alarm goes off. I'm like, oh, I got two more minutes to sleep. Why? 
And it is so fear-based. I am just afraid that I'm going to be late, that I'm going to miss rehearsal, the band's going to be mad at me, and I'm going to lose my job. That's the only reason that I wake up early. I need help waking up in the morning. This letter is, is a bit of a wake-up call. So there is this husband and wife, and they are, uh, they're fighting. It's not going well. They are not even speaking to each other anymore. They are reduced to just leaving little notes for each other on Post-its and putting them throughout the house. That's the only way they can communicate. And the husband, he's one of these guys, he's like me. He needs a little bit of extra help waking up in the morning. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't hear his alarm. His wife hears her phone. She hears his phone. She hears everything. So he writes her a note because he has to catch a flight the next morning. So he writes her a little note on a post-it and says, hey, I need to catch a flight. Please wake me up at 6 o'clock and leaves it on her bedside table. So he goes to sleep and uh, has a good night's sleep, wakes up the next morning, and he hears the birds singing outside and notices there's just a bit too much sunlight peeking through the windows and should be at that time of morning. And so he's kind of groggy. He gets up and he looks at the clock and it says 8.30. He has missed his flight. He is livid. He jumps out of bed, plants his feet, gets ready to yell down the stairs. And just then he notices a little note on his bedside table. It says, wake up at 6 o'clock. <laughs> now, that's not helpful. That is not helping a guy wake up in the morning. This letter that we are going to look at is a wake-up call. It is helpful. I promise you. It can be painful at times, but it is helpful. So, I've talked enough about it. Let's actually read the verse. Um, So it is chapter 2, starting in verse 14 through 24. Read with me. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by, here's a key word, action, action is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. Shudder. Ooh. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. And then here's kind of our key verse here. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Pretty, uh, pretty brutally honest, right? It's pretty. I mean, it's just blunt. And you know, this this verse is probably one of the most argued about and controversial verses in at least the New Testament, if not the entire Bible. And I'm so glad that I get to teach about it this week, my first week uh, teaching. But um, it, it scholars and, and historians they they've argued about this. In fact, um, Martin Luther. Y'all know Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights leader, but Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, the Lutheran Church. That Martin Luther, he wasn't, he wasn't a big fan of James. He just, he just wasn't. He, he didn't think much of it. In fact, he called this letter, he called it an epistle of straw. Isn't that interesting? An epistle of straw. And he said it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. And he was not a fan. In fact, he was actively trying to get this letter removed from the entire canon of Scripture. I mean, that's how much he didn't like the the book of James. 
Um, now, I disagree with Luther's take. I do believe that this does have the gospel woven into it. But we have to understand the context first. We have to understand what we are really talking about when we're digging in a little deeper here. So let me go back to the end of that, of that verse. It says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Another translation, it says, you see that then a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Justified by works, not by faith only. Now, let's just be real. Does that seem right to you? Does that seem like, yeah, that, that sounds like uh, teaching that I've, I've heard and other verses of the New Testament that I've written? Or does something seem like, hmm, it's making you maybe have a question in your mind? Well, if not, let me help you. Let's go back a couple of books to the the book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians. He's writing to this group of people, and Paul says this. You might know this verse. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by, what's the word? Works, so that no one can boast. Well then, um, okay, so I just read in James that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Well, but Paul is saying it's grace through faith, not works. So what does this mean? Is this, a, is this a contradiction? I mean, is the Bible contradicting itself? You might be like, well, Tim, this is, this is why I can't trust Scripture. This is why this whole thing is hard for me. I don't, it seems like they're, they're not saying the same thing. Well, I understand how it seems that way on the surface, but it's not a contradiction. They're actually complementing each other and to understand that, again, you need to understand context. You understand who Paul and James are talking to when they're writing these letters. So let's look at a little bit of a diagram if we can. We have Paul, we have the Apostle Paul, and we have James, the younger brother of, of, uh, of Jesus. Paul and James, they are both uh, you know, New Testament, early Christian um, believers, followers of Jesus, pivotal in the, uh, in the formation of the early church. They were both focusing on one particular word of this text. Paul is focusing on faith. James is focusing on works. Paul is saying it's, it's grace through faith that you're saved. And James is saying you're justified by works. So they feel like they're contradicting. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? And uh, what we need to understand is who each one of these guys is specifically talking to, uh, a specific group. Paul is writing... Um, in Ephesus, and he is addressing what I want to call the lie of legalism. Okay, the lie of legalism. You all familiar with legalism? That term. I know it's kind of a churchy term. Um, basically, I mean, there's there are better definitions for this, but my definition for it is basically the idea that I can earn my way, that I can do enough good works that I can somehow make things right with me and God, and that there's this constant checklist that people are watching. If I do so many things right, but I do too many things wrong. I'm in danger of losing, and I might be on thin ice here. It's, it, and please hear me when I say this, because I know this can be offensive. I'm not saying we should not strive to do what's right. We should. That should be a, mark, a life marked with the gospel, with the power of Jesus flowing through us, it should be marked by wanting to live better, wanting to not sin, wanting to, to do what is right. But legalism is elevating that above the gospel. It's elevating that to an unhealthy place that says it's always, you know, how many good things, how many bad things. And it's oftentimes religious observances historically that people have attached to that to say, well, uh, if it's communion, if it's baptism, if it's saying a certain prayer, whatever. Like baptism, we celebrated it last week, right? We had 21 people 
going down in the waters. And it was such an amazing symbol of old life that is dead and new life that, is, that has been brought to life by the Savior. And that is, that is a powerful symbol. But guys, it's just a symbol. It's, it's, a, it's, one, it's an important one. I mean, Jesus modeled it for us, but it is a symbol. It does not change your standing and my standing with the merciful Father. And Paul is trying to speak to this subject. He's saying, your works, when he uses the word works, he's talking about this type of stuff. He said, you can't make yourself right. You can't change your standing. It is grace alone, through faith, that you are saved, not by your works. Does that make sense? So James is kind of talking about the other end of the spectrum, what I want to call superficiality or superficial Christianity. What's that? Superficial Christianity, I would say, is this idea that Faith saves me, and that's enough, and I don't need to do anything else. I mean, I'm good. I mean, I believe in you, God, and I'll just, let's just keep, let's, let's keep work at work, and let's keep church at church, right? I mean, I don't want to have this inform how I live. I don't want to have this inform how I treat other people. I don't want this. I, I'm not going to consider, Jesus, what you would actually want me to do with my life, but um, we good? I mean, I got it in my head. I, I got it. That's it. James is trying to push us beyond that. He's trying to say, if you have been saved with grace— you need to take action. And that's really the, the pivotal word here. Grace that Paul would be talking about and James would be talking about action. That you have to do something with this. We heard it earlier. You have to be doers and not just hearers. And so these guys are complimenting each other. They are, they are giving us a complete picture of what faith and a walk with Christ looks like. And uh, I was studying... Uh, about this uh, this week, and I was reading a commentator who was talking about Luther and, and his criticism of, of James. And he, he said an interesting word. He said, if we're not careful, we can miss the harmonization that is happening between these two writers. The harmonization, they're harmonizing with each other. Now, I'm a music guy, so of course I have to bring in a musical flair to this thing. You all familiar with vocal harmony? We heard a little bit this morning with our vocal team. Harmonies and vocals with choirs, you have multiple vocal parts that to the untrained ear, when you hear them by themselves, might not even sound like the same song. It might even sound like they're going opposite directions. But when you hear them in context with each other, working, harmonizing, going hand in hand with each other, it's beautiful. It's a complete piece, right? So I was, uh, I was sent this video uh, a few weeks ago by a friend, and, and uh, they tagged me in it. And it's this, uh, it's this vocal group, and this is a very popular YouTube video. It's gotten like a million and a half hits. But uh, they are, the, the leader is leading them through an exercise where they, they sing, you know the old song, Better is One Day? Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house. Old 90s song. I mean, say old, it seems old to me. I mean, that, that was like when I was in youth, that's what we were playing. They sing this song, and they teach the parts, and you hear them out of context, each one individually, and then you hear what it sounds like when they sing together, and it's amazing. So, watch this. All right. Everybody on soprano.
chills. I love it. I love it. Now, what's the point? They were singing in harmony. It sounded like, is anybody caught at first like, oh, oh, that's an interesting part. Oh, that's an interesting part. And you started to think about that. And then when you heard together, the genius of it was revealed, right? The genius of this whole complete sound. And I would argue that this is what we're dealing with when we're talking about Paul, we're talking about James. They're saying it's not just that we have been saved through faith. It's that we have been saved through faith to do good works. You can't, miss, you can't just take one without the other. They go hand in hand. And that's the, life, that's the life marked with the gospel. It's so powerful when you think of it in that context. And by the way, Paul, Paul would agree. Paul would agree with James about works. It's amazing. Have you ever read on, on that, in that verse in Ephesians? you know what the very next verse says after he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith? Let me read it for you. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And here it is. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's right there, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, I mean, Paul is saying we are created to do this. We are created to do this. This is part of our destiny. If, if you are a Christ follower and your life is not marked with action, and by that I mean this simple statement: we are to love God and we are to love people. Now you've probably heard that before. That's it's very common. That that's it in a nutshell. That is the Christian life. If you boil everything down to, I just I need to love God, I need to love people. Then your your faith and your works are working together. And if you don't love God and you don't love people and you call yourself a Christian, maybe you need to examine. Maybe you need to reconsider what that what that word means. That's what James would argue. So, one, one last little key point that I want to emphasize, and then we'll be done. But it's in verses 18 and 19. We kind of, we went through it fast when we read the entire passage, but it's probably one of the most uh, pointed parts of this passage. Read along with me. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And then here it is. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I mean, that's, that's, that's hitting, it, hitting you where it hurts, right? I mean, what are you saying, James? You say, you believe in God. Good for you. Gold star. You got it. You're right in line with the demons. I mean, that's like, whoa. I mean, the, the demons, think about that. These created beings, these, these fallen angels that once were around the throne of the creator, of the Lord of heaven and earth. They were around his throne. They saw the face of God and they chose to reject him. That's who we're being compared to when we stop short of this. I mean, that, 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 is, that is brutal. Now, 
You know, it's interesting. He said, um, he used the, the, the phrasing, you believe there is one God. Anybody find that interesting? They would say that and not just, good, you believe in God. He's saying, no, you believe there is one God. Again, context. Understand who James is writing to. Jewish Christians. They're, they were Christ followers, but they were Jewish. That was their lineage. That was their heritage. That's what they learned growing up. So if you were a, a Jewish young boy or young girl in those days, and even today it happens, um, you learn these confessions, right? You learn these confessions, these, uh, these prayers that um, they could, you, could, you could quote it, you know it like the back of your hand because you were taught from a very early age what these are. And most likely... The very first confession that you would learn if you were a young Jewish boy, young Jewish girl, your mom and dad might pick you up, sit you in their lap and say, listen, um, you need to understand something. Uh, this, is, this is who we are. This is what we believe. This is, this is our family history. This is what we know to be true. And then they would teach them, it's called the Shema. If you're familiar with any of the old Jewish um, confessions. The Shema is, is based on the first word in this confession. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. means here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. They were teaching their kids that we serve one God. We serve one God. Why do I say that? Because James is saying, you believe, you've been taught that, that you serve, that there is one God. I'm, I'm glad. I'm grateful. I'm so glad that you believe that. But it has to go beyond that. It can't just be your parents' faith. It can't just be your, all the history that predated you. It can't just be something that you understand, but has never trickled its way down into your heart and caused you to want to do something about it. Does that make sense? I mean, it's an amazing, again, if you dig a little bit deeper under the surface, what are we saying here? There's all kinds of context for this verse. And um, it's easy to just get hung up on one side, depending on where you're at and how you grew up, to say, I grew up focusing on works. I felt like it was a stranglehold on me. And I, it, it never felt like, the, like Jesus was the one saving me. I always felt like I was the one that had to somehow save myself. That's not what James is talking about. He's talking about what's supposed to happen next and what's supposed to continually happen and what is supposed to represent this transformed life continually, day by day. So there's a, uh, there's a quote, and it kind of sums it up, and it's actually by, by Martin Luther. Ironically enough, for all his criticism of James, this quote has been attributed to him through different writings that, that, uh, that he put forth. It says this, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith that saves is never alone. He would even agree to that, that it's not just that God has miraculously transformed and saved me. That's that's what I cling to. That's what did it. But if it's true faith, if it's faith that is alive, not dead, to use James' language, then it must lead to something. It must lead to a transformed life that informs, like I said, not just my attitude when I'm in church or when I'm, when, when I'm thinking about religious things. It's practical. It helps. 
So my question for you this morning is simple. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? And believe me, I'm asking myself that same question because we all struggle with this, yes? We all struggle with this, um, this continuum of our, of our journey. And if, you are, if you're fortunate um, to have been maybe saved in an early age, you're like me, you, you were brought up in the church, it's something you really even didn't have an option, right? I mean, you, you just kind of were born into this thing. Um, it's an amazing testimony in and of itself, but it also carries with it the risk that you can become complacent. Can we just be honest, right? Like, if you've been walking with Christ a long time, sometimes we forget the, um, the awe and the wonder and the transformation that took place in our lives, whether it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, it doesn't matter. We have the tendency to kind of lay back and say, I, I got it now, I can take it easy. I don't, I don't need to do anything. I mean, I got it. It's for me. James is saying, you don't want that kind of faith. You don't want that kind of faith. It's a faith that's dead. It's a faith that leads you nowhere. So, what kind of faith do you have? Um, maybe you are someone that grew up with this whole legalistic um, overemphasis of works and what you did. And you hear these words and you think, oh, this is sounding like pressure. This is sounding like you're trying to rope me into something, Pastor. You want me to sign up for, to teach a class? You want me to sign up to teach kids? That's, hear me. That is not why I'm sharing this. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't, I don't know what taking action looks like in your life. But I do know that God is calling each one of us maybe a little further out of our comfort zones than we would like to admit at times. So what is that next step for you? I don't know. But maybe let's... let's Maybe right now we can just close our eyes, bow our heads, and ask the question. I mean, he, we believe he's here, right? We believe that where two or three are gathered, his presence is here. So why wouldn't we ask him? God, what is my next step? What are you saying to me? Show me where I've missed this. Show me where my head has gotten me in trouble. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you would be really honest and say, Tim, I, uh, everything you're talking about, it, it, it's kind of over my head. I don't, I'm not even sure that I have faith. I, I'm not sure that I do believe. Well, thank you for being honest, first of all. Maybe your next step is a decision. Maybe your next step is breaking down the walls and uh, recognizing that what you're feeling, there's something there. So, not with any pomp and circumstance, any big production, any ta-da thing. You would just quietly sit there where you're at and maybe, maybe you whisper this prayer. Jesus, I feel you calling me. I don't understand all of it. I have questions. A lot of it doesn't make sense today. But I can't shake this feeling that I have that, that, there, that there's more here. That you want me to make a decision to live for you. 
And so, as best I know how, I'm saying yes to you this morning. I'm asking you to come in. I'm asking you to cleanse me. To make right where I've gotten so wrong. Because I'm tired of trying to figure this out myself. And I need you. Would you help me with this? Will you show me? But I trust you.